The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. Uh, okay, so, uh, uh, so there is a long note here about uh, referring to uh, someone talking about an abusive relationship, I think, yesterday or something. So this is uh, what this person has to say. So, dear person in an abusive relationship, I'm sorry that you are in an abusive relationship. You feel you can't get out of it. I was in an emotional, psychologically, and sometimes physically abusive relationship. I always thought others had endured worse, so I kept it to myself. I endured this for eight years of marriage. If he saw this, he would probably call me a liar, amongst other things. I'm glad you wrote, because I can finally see how far I've come. I got out of that marriage, separated, moved into a flat with my two kids, I sold the house, uh, got the money I deserved. Uh, I still see him because of my kids, but you can't, uh, but you can't get out. Uh, my scars, mental, are still fresh, uh, so I, I hope it helps. Keep listening to Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Brahmali's talks. Uh, meditate, keep listening. Eventually, you will find an answer for yourself. No one can find that for you, and that's the hardest part. Uh, and meditate, meditate, meditate. I wish you well with metta, 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 and love and kindness. Thank you. One last thing. If it wasn't for my ex, I may not have found meditation in Ajahn Brahmajamali, and I would not be as strong spiritually as I am today. Okay, good. So that's, uh, and um, this is kind of the weird thing about things, is that uh, sometimes the long-term consequences of things are really hard to figure out. Uh, and you have that famous story with Ajahn Brahm, good, bad, who knows, uh, and it's, it's a good story because sometimes hardship leads to good results in the long run. It's very strange how that is. Uh, I always found that in my own life as well. When things get difficult, uh, if you deal with it in a skillful way uh, and you uh, kind of learn from those situations, actually you end up becoming a better person usually. Uh. But it's easy to end up doing the wrong things uh, when things get difficult uh, and then you drag yourself and everyone else down as a consequence. Okay. Dear Ajahn Ramali, would you please tell a few more personal stories of your <coughs> of your teaching blessing lay people and how you view the experience of how you may how uh, how they may benefit from it? Uh, <laughs> okay, well let me put that one aside for now and I'll see see if I can I might get back to it uh, see if I can uh, see what happens. So. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your insightful teaching. This afternoon we're talking about uh, uh, praising the Buddha. It occurred to me that when I do chanting before evening and morning meditation, my meditation is more peaceful and mindful. Uh, Ajahn, any comments? Yes, that's exactly right. So this is uh, the right way of doing chanting. Yeah, It actually leads to something positive. Uh, a lot of people, they chant because, I don't know, they think it's good merit or whatever. But really, the ideal way of chanting is that it leads to something positive, a positive mental state. Uh, and of course, if you understand the qualities that you are chanting about and the uh, qualities of the Buddha, etc., uh, it tends to become even more powerful. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, do, this is the right way of doing it, uh, and uh, I think that is uh, very useful. And sometimes, when you 
come home maybe from a long day and you're a bit tired or perhaps you had a bit of stress or who knows what, uh, then it, it's often important to start not with sitting down and trying to meditate straight away because it just becomes tense, you can't really relax. So do a bit of chanting, put on, put on a bit of kind of dhamma chanting or music, even just ordinary music or whatever, just to kind of calm you down and get into the right state before you do anything else. So that's uh, exactly the right way of of going about it. So uh, this is the this is the right way of using chanting, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and then it becomes very useful. Huh? And all the little uh, all the little um, rituals that we do in Buddhism, this should really be meaningful. They should do something for you. And if they become completely empty, then they become really a waste of time. Huh? So uh, good. Dear Ajahn, this afternoon you mentioned something about the sense of self uh, stopping or blocking you from truly seeing suffering. Can you please explain a little more about this idea? Uh, thanks, Avimeta. Um Well, the, 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 the sense of self is, um, uh, is the thing that kind of is the big block on everything on the Buddhist path, this is the kind of the primary delusion of all delusions, uh, is the sense of self. And uh, as long as there is a sense of self, there will always be that seeking for happiness in the world. Uh, uh, because the sense of self demands happiness. Uh, yeah, you, I exist, uh, I am here, uh, and because I feel I exist, uh, I want happiness. Uh, it is kind of the nature of the sense of self to want happiness. If the sense of self can't have any happiness, uh, that is where it starts to die completely and disappear. Uh, Wanting happiness and having a sense of self go together. So wherever you, whatever you identify with, and we tend to identify with certain things specifically, so you identify, for example, with the doer, with doing. So because you identify with doing, you actually do things to feel alive, to satisfy and gratify that sense of self. The sense of self becomes happy when you do things. And this is one way in which a sense of self blocks your ability from seeing the dukkha in doing, because the sense of self wants to see happiness there. And you do things simply because you want to gratify your feeling of existing in this way. And in the same way, we tend to we tend to identify with certain perceptions of who we are. Yeah, Some mornings you say, oh, I don't really feel myself this morning. What that means is that uh, you're the thing you identify with that usually isn't quite there, so you feel slightly at a loss. Yeah, your normal self isn't there. What you identify with is not not actually there anymore. So you are seeking those experiences that gratify the sense of self, and they will tend to be happy experiences because you want to be happy. The sense of self wants to be happy. So as long as we have a sense of self, we cannot see dukkha probably because those areas we identify with, we cannot see those as dukkha because it goes counter to the sense of self. So you, the first thing to do is then to unblock the sense of self to see that it actually is an illusion. And once you see that, that enables you, allows you to see the full extent of dukkha and suffering in human existence. This is very profound. Yeah, this is kind of this is really coming towards the very end of the Buddhist path, uh, uh, where you attain kind of stream entry and go beyond, even beyond that. Uh, so this is not uh, easy to relate to, but uh, I guess it's kind of useful to sort of know what is coming coming up down the path. Uh, <clears throat> so um, 
yeah, that is really what uh, what it is about. And the, the sense of self is kind of the big thing that you have to see, the big delusion in Buddhism uh, that we're trying to uh, uncover and then get that out of the way and then uh, you're able to kind of see the rest kind of comes along as a consequence. Uh, hope that makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, please try again now. Dear Venerable Ajahn, is everything in the world of forms and phenomena nothing but suffering here? Is it possible to have pleasure in worldly things while not becoming attached to them? <laughs> or is it necessary to turn away from all nice things in life and seek spiritual awakening and joy exclusively here with metta and gratitude? Um the worldly things are a mixture of suffering and happiness. Yeah, otherwise you wouldn't be interested in worldly things. So there is a type of happiness in worldly things. There is a type of happiness in relationships. There is a type of happiness in enjoying uh, nice food, seeing nice entertainment, all of these kind of things. If there wasn't any kind of happiness there, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be interested. You would have left it all long ago. So there is some kind of happiness there. But we overestimate that happiness vastly, and that is the problem. We don't actually see the balance right. We think the balance is happiness is great as a bit of suffering. I can control the suffering. I'll just work it out and check it out and kind of keep it in check, and then I'll kind of just go for the happiness. That's what we think. We have a distorted idea of how much happiness there is in the world. And that's why you need to rebalance and recalibrate this. And you need to kind of change the scales a little bit and understand actually the suffering is far more predominant than the happiness. You get a bit of happiness and the suffering comes immediately afterwards. Yeah, you kind of you hold on to things. You have an idea of what the world what is what the world is like and then you hold on to that and the world changes you have a nice relationship and then it breaks up someone dies someone gets sick they leave you whatever it is or you leave them who knows what and always it ends in separation everything must end in death and death is always the final thing in this life so separation always gets the final word yeah. So how much do you want to attach during life if separation is the final word? The more you attach during life, the more you're going to suffer when you finally have to die because everything has to go. This is the kind of the problem that we're facing. And for a lot of these attachments, it happens long before you die. So the world is always crumbling. The world is always unreliable. The world is always moving in directions that uh, sometimes you like, but very often that you don't like. Uh, and by the world, I mean everything in the five senses, everything you experience, uh, even your ideas about the world. Uh, yeah, All of that uh, is always unreliable and always going to lead you to um, negative outcomes in the end. Uh, so that's why you seek your refuge somewhere else. Don't seek refuge in the world. Yes, there is some happiness there, but no, the balance. The balance always comes out in the suffering, in the favor of suffering here. Is it possible to have pleasure in worldly things while not becoming attached to them? Um, it is possible if you have a higher pleasure. So if you have access to jhanas, for example, and you have a good samadhi, then you can enjoy the food, you can enjoy kind of other things in life and not become attached to them because you have a higher happiness. But if you haven't got a higher happiness that is available to you, then you will attach to those pleasures because that is what gives you meaning in life. You, everyone needs to have pleasures. Without pleasure, life is meaningless. Yeah, If it's all just dukkha, 
relentless dukkha one moment after the other, then uh, life doesn't have any meaning anymore and you can end up committing suicide or whatever. Uh, so you need pleasure somewhere and wherever you have pleasure there will be some degree of attachment uh, simply because uh, uh, we, need those hap- we need happiness in life. Uh, and um, that is why when you, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you shouldn't practice samadhi because it leads to attachments. And it does lead to a little bit of attachment. That's unavoidable. But the alternative is having lower attachments to lower things, uh, which is even worse. Yeah, so the higher attachment is better than the lower attachments. So it's really a choice. Attachment is not a choice. You have to be attached. Yeah, why? This again has to do with the sense of self. The sense of self has certain attributes which you will attach to, and they often have tentacles going into the world, and you attach to those things. They become like the larger self spreading itself out into the world. Is it necessary to turn away from all nice things? Well, this is the point. You're not turning away from nice things. As long as you think they are nice, you will not turn away from them. You have to see them differently. And this is why it is a gradual thing. Yeah. So this is why you, um, you think about this, you reflect on it, uh, until you actually you, your values change. Don't force this to happen. If you force it to happen, if you think that I must now understand sensuality as dukkha, and from now on I'm going to live just like as if everything is dukkha, that is the wrong way around, and you're going to suffer enormously if you do that. Instead, these things are things to be reflected upon. Think about these things. Yeah, what do they? What does it mean? You know it is true that all the things in the world are impermanent and unreliable. Yeah, we all know that. It's actually pretty blooming obvious that that is the case yeah it's just you know it's just nature we know that that is the case but you have to take it on board fully or gradually and then more and more and more and as you do that you turn more away from those things and you turn to the spiritual qualities instead the things that develop your mind and develop other aspects of your life so don't try to don't kind of force these kind of views onto yourself allow them to arise naturally yeah, this is uh, the Buddha's suggestion for how we should see the world uh, and then see if that makes sense and then gradually develop that in a natural way. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be unbearable. To, and this is why people sometimes think Buddhism is just so negative and pessimistic because they think that they have to look at the world in a negative way. But that's not the point. Uh, the point is to see if you can develop these perceptions. Uh, that's the point. Uh, and if you do, the Buddha promises you more happiness. Uh, so this is uh, how it works. So uh, don't turn away from all the nice things in the life. Just hang out with the nice things. As long as you think they're nice, then you know, enjoy them. Just try to reflect differently. And as you reflect, then hopefully you will gradually turn away in a new direction and you seek your refuge somewhere else in meditation practice, in the spiritual practice, in kindness and compassion, all of these things. And then you have something far, far more valuable than the worldly things. Okay. In your view, can Buddhist cosmology, including rebirth, be reconciled with contemporary physics and evolutionary science? And a bonus question, (laughs) if you can be bothered, do materialist views of the mind, like Daniel Dennett's multiple drafts model, fit with the Buddhist philosophy here? Thanks for your tolerance. <laughs> okay, I shall. <clears throat> so, 
uh, can it be reconciled with contemporary physics and evolutionary science? And I think the answer is yes. I don't think there really is any, any problem there. Uh, contemporary physics is a particular, you know, is a particular uh, uh, concern, a certain worldview that has been arrived at through experimentation. Uh, but uh, a lot of the problem is that um, uh, the ideas of the mind are often based on uh, philosophy. This kind of uh, materialist worldview is really a philosophical worldview uh, that is arrived at by uh, studying nature through physics. Uh, but there are many possible conclusions to be drawn f from those ex physical experiments. Uh, and the materialist worldview is only one. The materialist worldview is not an, uh, a necessary outcome of the physical experiments. Uh, and this is kind of interesting and important to realize. There are various interpretations possible of modern physics. Uh, so I would say absolutely. Uh, uh, evolutionary science, uh, again, I don't think there is a problem because evolutionary science concerns uh, the evolution of physical things, uh, like genetic evolution. Uh, and genetic evolution is one thing. The evolution of the mind is something else. Uh, evolution of the mind is kamma, how we live, habits, all of these kind of things. And there are two different streams of evolution, one operating in the physical realm, one operating in the mental realm. And then these kind of cross each other, they somehow merge, and they be, that's how individuals arise. But there is no direct relationship between the mental evolution and the physical evolution. Yeah, the, uh, There would be a kind of crossover there. So I don't think that there is any point problem there. I think that, that is, uh, again, it is compatible. Uh, um, do materialist views of the mind uh, fit with Buddhist philosophy? And uh, I would say no, because uh, a materialist view of the mind is basically that, uh, uh, that uh, the mental content are reducible to physical phenomena. Yeah, so all... Um, all the mental things that we experience ultimately can be described from physical phenomena. And that, I think, is not really possible from a Buddhist point of view, because it means that when you die, that's it, yeah, finished. Because uh, if, it relies, if it depends on the brain kind of being structured in a certain way, and without that you can't have consciousness, uh, of course, then, of course, that is counter to Buddhist ideas of rebirth and, and survival after death and all of these kind of things. Uh, so I think the answer there is, is no, uh, and um, I, you know, to, as far as I can see, modern science is still very kind of fumbling in the dark as far as the mind is concerned. Uh, there is, as you know, some philosophers have pointed out, there's not even any principles for explaining how objective experience, subjective experience, uh, can arise from material phenomena. How can you know, feeling like feeling, you know, seeing red or feeling a nice, joyful feeling inside. Uh, be even in principle be explained from physical phenomena. It is there is no bridge there between the two. So there's a massive gap in uh, modern science and philosophy to explain this. And until we have some kind of explanation, anything is really possible. Maybe our whole philosophical outlook of the world has to be changed somehow. But it's still very primitive. The whole science of the mind, the modern science, is very still in a very primitive stage. And a lot, I think, will happen in that area. Anyway, that's my, my view of that. And uh, just. Uh, okay. 
In Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about bodhicitta, the mind that wants to lead all sentient beings to nirvana out of compassion for their suffering. Here. Yeah, yes. What is the uh, uh, importance of the mind of compassion in Theravada Buddhism? Is it important to have bodhicitta? Or is cessation of personal suffering the end of the path uh, with metta? Okay, so what is the importance of the mind of compassion in troubles? It is very important. Compassion is you know, one of those very important qualities to develop. Even more important is probably metta, uh, because metta is a, a, always a very positive feeling where you see the positive qualities in others uh, and you have a sense of kindness towards them. You feel positive about them. Uh, compassion is more about focusing on suffering and wanting to help relieve the suffering of others. Uh, it's a little bit more dangerous because when you see suffering sometimes it can get a bit overwhelming yeah all this suffering in life uh, and you can get negative about that or depressed about the suffering of the world uh. so metta is more important but compassion is very important because it allows us to uh, to to empathize with people around us it allows us to understand what they are going through and it makes kindness much more effective and much more natural once you understand compassion uh. And one of the, as I mentioned yesterday, one of the uh, wrong kind of intentions in Buddhism is the uh, idea of being ruthless. Yeah, because if you are ruthless, uh, you don't care about the consequences of your action uh, uh, towards other people. Uh, and if you don't care about that, that's exactly the opposite of compassion. Uh, caring about the consequences of your actions, that is compassion in action. Uh. So it is very important. And the Buddha was a prime example of that. He taught simply out of compassion. That was the only quality, really, the only thing that the Buddha did during the last 45 years of his life. The only thing that motivated him was compassion to help other beings come out of suffering. There was nothing else for the Buddha, yeah, except for kind of looking forward to his death. It's kind of weird, isn't it, looking forward to your death? But that's kind of what the Buddhas do. They look forward to their death. And so those two things yeah, motivated the Buddha, looking forward to dying and, uh, <laughs> and uh, having compassion in the meantime. Uh, to have the bodhicitta, well, you don't really have a bodhicitta in, uh, in, uh, you know, according to early Buddhism. Uh, because bodhicitta also has to do with, you know, as you say, all the full Mahayana path and all of that. Uh, so that is not really the point. The point is not to have a citta to elevate, bring all other beings out of suffering. Uh, uh, it's a nice idea and we do the best we can, but uh, you cannot really wait for that. You can't wait for all beings to get out of suffering because uh, you're never gonna, nothing is ever going to happen in your own life if you do that. Uh, so you have to just uh, be, do like the Buddha. The Buddha was an example to all through his own practice. And in the same way, we should also try to be an example to all through our own practice. That is the right way. If the Buddha had had the bodhicitta, then uh, uh, he wouldn't have been the Buddha. Yeah, and then we would be in deep trouble if that, was, if that were the case. So we should be glad that the Buddha practiced the path all the way to the end. He didn't try to save all sentient beings first because uh, then there would be a problem here. And the problem with this is that um, if you decide to save all sentient beings, it means you can't really reach awakening, because once you reach awakening, then you uh, are out of here. Yeah, You don't have any future anymore in samsara, so it means that you don't really have any insight. Uh, because you don't have any insight, you can't really help other people. Uh, because you can't help them, you will never get all those beings out of samsara. Uh, 
So it is a recipe for everyone being stuck in samsara forever. That's what it is a recipe for. I, have I said too much? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the bodhicitta to me. That's, that's how I regard the bodhicitta. It's a recipe for disaster. That's what I say here. <laughs> I apologize. I'm being. Is this recorded? Oh, did you, <coughs> <laughs> we can edit that bit. Out. <laughs> okay. So uh, there you are. So that's uh, my my view of that. It depends, of course, what you mean by bodhicitta. But if that's what is meant, then I think there is a problem here. Okay. Dibante, you mentioned abandonment of Sakaya Ditti, a personality view, and, uh, and abandoning uh, uh, rites and rituals, clinging, arising at the insight moment of stream entry. Yeah, I should just say that it is not rites and rituals, it is actually virtues and vows, it is sila, bhatta. Yeah, sila is, is like virtues and Bhatta or vatta is uh, is vows that you undertake, whatever those vows might be. That's I know that the standard translation is rites and ritual, but actually is not really a correct translation here. So yeah, so clinging to rites and rituals, uh, and also doubt. Yeah, did you mention doubt here? Uh, and doubt is the third one. Uh, you also said re sangyutta nikaya forty eight eight four factors of stream entry include unshakable confidence and sila. Uh, do the other three factors relate to not being able intentionally to steal, kill and lie or something else? Uh, many thanks for the compassionate, concise teaching. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, yes, it is true that when you become a stream mentor, according to the suttas, you abandon those three things, Sakaya Ditti, personality view. You no longer have the view that there is a personal, uh, 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 permanent entity inside of you, which is the real you that goes. Uh, you abandoned uh, holding on to virtue and vows. Uh, not really rights and rituals, but virtue and vows. And the point of that is that uh, before you become a stream enter, uh, if you want to be truly virtuous and moral person, uh, you have to hold on to it a little bit. You have to kind of cling a little bit to, to virtue. Yeah? If you don't cling a little bit to it, you're just going to do, do whatever you want. Uh, but when somebody shouts, shouts at you or says something bad to you, you have to hold back a little bit. Uh, so you have to attach a little bit to the virtue. Otherwise, not going to happen. Uh, once you become a stream mentor, no need to attach anymore because it becomes automatic. It just becomes who you are. That's really what it means. Yeah. So, um, so don't try to be a stream mentor before you do it. Sometimes people say we should avoid attaching to these things, whether it's right to rituals or sila, because uh, that is the path to stream mentoring. It's not the path to stream mentoring. The path to stream mentoring is to attach to these things. These are the result of stream mentoring, not to attach these things. So you had to get these things in the right sequence. And then there is doubt, yeah, because you have seen the teachings for what they are. You don't have any doubt anymore. You know what is going on. Doubt is vanished. Vichikicha. That's pretty nice, isn't it? Have no doubt about the about the Dhamma. That's pretty pretty useful. And then you have the four factors of stream entry. And one of them uh, uh, is unshakable confidence and sila. Uh, so Actually, three of them are unshakable confidence and one is sila, and that's the four. Yeah, so that is the four right there. And uh, 
the sila itself that um, uh, you have the morality beloved by the noble ones the arya kanta sila is what you have and that means that your sila is steady, it is reliable, it is consistent and all of these things. You don't really break it. Occasionally you might break it, but only usually minor things. And uh, uh, are you capable of killing? Um, I don't know if it says anywhere in the suttas that you are incapable of intentionally killing. But uh, it is very, very unlikely. And it may perhaps happen in very kind of... Um, special circumstances like you kill an insect or something like that perhaps it may be possible but generally speaking you will not do those things it's only the arahant who is said to not be able to intentionally kill or steal or lie and these kind of things as a stream enterer the perfection of your sila is more about you can't hide it and you can't uh, you know you can't kill and afterwards pretend you didn't you will confess it straight away and to purify yourself of that fault but generally speaking, you're going to be very pure as a person. Huh? And then the uh, uh, unshakable confidence is the unshakable confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha. Yeah, and the reason for that is because you again you have seen the teachings, so you know the Buddha was behind this. You know someone who was awakened would have seen this. You know the teachings work. You've seen them for yourself, and you know that those people who practice them will attain the same results. That is the noble Sangha. Of the areas. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Uh, if not, try again. Dear Ajahn, thank you very much for teaching us. There always seems to be an extra special something that you can tease out from a single line of sutta I've read since I was a kid. Okay, I'm glad I can be of a little bit of assistance. That's good. I've noticed that sometimes I can reflect on the dangers of defilements and they go away. However, there are times when my reflection isn't strong enough. Do I observe myself passively? and watch it arise and cease. What do I do? Listening to your Dhamma talk cleared away, cleared away the unwholesome state. So thanks for that. Okay, That's very nice. But I wonder what to do during the day or during meditation. Okay, so um, uh, the Buddha gives quite nicely, if there is a nice sutta called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, found in the Majjhimanikai, the middle-length sayings number 20, where he talks about five ways of dealing with unwholesome thoughts. And um, the first one is sometimes just called substitution. Yeah, You you see the bad thought there, and straight away you focus on another aspect of the object, and because you focus on another aspect, bang, the bad thought goes away. Yeah. So you think about a person perhaps in some negative memory or negative thing arises in your mind because of that person. Maybe there's some trouble between you or whatever. And straight away you remember, actually, no, they're a Buddhist. They've got all these good qualities. And then you make that big and bang, those negative qualities are, are gone straight away. But you have already built up that perception before. So now all you do is like substitute and you bring out that positive view instead. So this is one way of doing it. And this is very powerful. If you get that right, it is very powerful in eliminating and obliterating those bad qualities. And then there is, as you say, uh, focusing on the dangers, yeah, uh, and knowing that um, uh, these things will lead to suffering, they will lead you away from the path, uh, they are 
painful. They are, you know, are, are really problematic in so many ways. And uh, again, the more you reflect on that, you know, generally, the more you reflect on that, uh, the more ability you will be, uh, you will have in using that when the defilements arise. But then, if that doesn't work, the Buddha says, then you should. Uh, the next one is not to pay any attention, yeah, to that thought. And uh, that means, like, you know, you just don't, uh, you just carry on with what you're doing, and you don't kind of attend to that thought at all. You kind of just leave it aside. So if you are meditating and you see a bit of uh, ill will arising, uh, you just hang, hang on to the breath, and you stay with the breath, uh, and you kind of allow that thought to sort of disappear because you're not giving any attention to it. So this is one way. Uh, another way. So this is what you are suggesting here. Yeah, you're suggesting the idea of uh, allow watching it arise and cease, and that is a little bit like that. And then the fourth method is also similar to that, and that is where the Buddha says that you uh, basically you withdraw the uh, what is it called the vitaka sankara, I think he calls it, and this sankara, the vitaka sankara, Kara is the will that lies behind the thought. And the point there is that to think, you have to want to think. Yes, there's always a little bit of will that lies behind the thinking. And if you give rise to mindfulness, and then that mindfulness is the opposite of willing, is just being passively aware. And by being passively aware without doing anything, the thought just calms down by itself. So you watch the thought, and as you watch it, you see it kind of gradually disappearing here. It's slightly different from the previous one, which is not giving attention to it, because there you kind of uh, you don't worry about, you don't pay attention to it at all. Here you pay attention to it, but you just watch it cease, yeah. And it usually happens very fast if you have good mindfulness. And the last one, the last method, is to uh, crush mind with mind and uh, use willpower to overcome that uh, negative thought. Uh, be careful with that, but sometimes you know if you're about to do something really bad, that is the time to crush mind with mind and kind of eliminate that thought at least for a while. So that is what uh, uh, what the Buddha proposes to do. Yeah. So uh, see if that works. And uh, yeah. Okay, these days you come across people who say they are secular Buddhists. I assume that means Buddhism without faith and rituals. Is that right? And what is your view of secular Buddhism? Thank you. Um, it means many things. It means kind of stripping away the things that you don't like. That's usually what it means. Uh, secular Buddhism. Uh, and... Uh, it is the assumption that there are things in Buddhism that are not compatible with secular society or secular thought. Yeah, so it can mean stripping away rituals, but uh, I think even secular Buddhists have some rituals. You know, it's very hard to live completely without rituals. You know, sometimes we shake hands; that's kind of a ritual as well. So a little bit of rituals is okay, and I think even secular Buddhists sometimes they uh, might do things that uh, are uh, are ritual-like. Like you know, like um, I don't know, I don't know what, uh, but uh, I don't really know people who are uh, most people I know who are, don't call themselves secular Buddhists. Uh, 
Um, but again, you know, if the ritual has a meaning, then you should, you should do it, even if you are a secular Buddhist. There's nothing wrong with doing a bit of chanting or listening to chanting or whatever, or doing things that make you feel peaceful, as, even if it is a ritual, but it's a meaningful ritual. That's really the point. Uh, what secular Buddhism usually means, one of the main things it means, is that it means... Uh, and not believing in rebirth. Yeah, this is kind of one of the main things because rebirth is considered by many people to be like just an ancient cultural trapping coming from India and it has no, uh, has no place in kind of modern society. But I think that is very short-sighted and I think it really misunderstands that sometimes these ancient teachings have more wisdom than we have in the modern world. Yeah, why? To throw these things away, you are... Th- Actually, what you're doing is you're throwing out the baby. Huh? Yeah, get sure, get rid of the bathwater, but keep the baby for goodness' sake. Yeah? And that is, uh, <laughs> this is the problem here. Huh? Yeah, so we are because it is so fundamental to Buddhism that if you don't have the idea of rebirth, basically the whole thing is gone. Huh? There's nothing left. You have to rewrite the whole thing from scratch. Huh? I don't think the Buddha would have been very impressed if we if we do that. Huh? So that is one area where I think the secular Buddhists go really wrong. Huh? Another area where they tend to go wrong is that some secular Buddhists believe that there is no need for a monasticism. That the monastic sangha is optional. Throw out all the monks and nuns and then we will all be happy lay Buddhists together. And um, that also, I think, is very short-sighted because uh, uh, Buddhism is a kind of teaching whereby you actually... to gain the full depth of the path, uh, you have to really give up the world. Yeah, Giving up all the sensuality, giving up the worldly things to withdraw from society, that is where samadhi happens. Uh, the chances of attaining samadhi and insight in ordinary lay society is very small compared to actually doing it on as a monastic. Uh, that doesn't mean that all monastics get samadhi, far from it, uh, but it just means that the chances are much greater here. Uh, so by giving up the monastic sangha, you're giving up the, the far superior vehicle for actually achieving real insight into Buddhism. And you're throwing out the chance of, of insight and understanding of these beautiful teachings. That's really what you're doing here. So I think it's extraordinarily short-sighted, and I think it is a, a lack of understanding of what Buddhism really is about. What people want to do very often, this is also kind of sometimes part of secular Buddhism, they want to have their life, yeah, ordinary life, and they also want to be Buddhist. And they don't understand that there comes a point in this practice where these must separate their ways a little bit. Yeah, this is why you come on retreat here. Already you are separating a little bit out your spiritual practice from your ordinary life. Otherwise you just stay at home. You wouldn't even bother coming here. So already you are seeing the value of moving a little bit away from your ordinary life. Yeah? So this is already uh, doing that to some extent. Uh, and um, uh, the further down the track you go, uh, the more this starts to happen and the more you kind of understand the value of that uh, seclusion from the ordinary life. Uh. So these are some of the things. Without faith, I think there must always be some degree of confidence, yeah? Uh, because without confidence, uh, then there is no interest in Buddhism at all. Uh, because Buddhism, are, after all, it is the teachings of the historical Buddha. And lots of secular Buddhists are very interested in the suttas. They love reading the suttas. And they take a lot of uh, information from that and use that in their practice, uh, so they don't have lack of faith in that sense. Uh, they bring faith and confidence is certainly part of that. But they just tend to 
be more interpretive. Uh, yeah, they interpret the teaching slightly differently, uh, but they still base their life on that. Uh. So what do I think of secular Buddhists? Well, sometimes people start out as secular Buddhists uh, and they become more integrate more of Buddhism later on, yeah, as they continue practicing. Uh, and uh, uh, I personally don't see Buddhism. Is it is it a religion? Anyway, and, and it really depends what you mean by the word religion. Is rebirth a religious thing? Well, if rebirth is real, it is not a religious thing at all. It is a secular thing just like everything else. You can't say that rebirth is a religious thing. Um, does Buddhism ever become a religion? Yes, it does. Sometimes you have people praying to the Buddha to get, the, you know, get a new BMW or whatever. Then it is a religion. Yeah, but Then it becomes a religion. And that is very unfortunate. That is not what I would recommend. So sometimes Buddhism does come a religion, but the early Buddhist teachings, are they religious? Well, they are religious in the sense that they eventually lead to, lead to liberation of mind. Yeah, if, you, if you call that religion, then it is religious. So it really is, it matters, it all depends on how we define these things and what we mean by it. But to me, there is no real reason to think that Buddhism, the full Buddhism, is incompatible with secular values. To me, they go very well together. It's just that it's a slightly different way of thinking of this compared to what we're used to. So I think secular Buddhism is not really required. I think we can just call everything Buddhism and then be, be finished with it. Okay. Dear Ajahn, uh, as my death is not far away, <laughs> could you please do a guided death contemplation meditation if possible? Sure, we can do that. This is my third retreat with you. Each time after the retreat, I am more peaceful and a content person. Thank you so much for your teaching. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, that is a very nice note. And uh, we shall do a death contemplation. Uh, we'll try to do that maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow night might be a, might be a good time. So put that one to one side as well, and then we'll have a look at that later on. Dear Renovan Ajahn, thank you so much for your teachings this retreat. If we have no self, no soul, no essence, what is it that takes rebirth <laughs> in our next life? Is this not, this not a kind of enduring essence that gets passed on with metta? This is the teaching, this is a question I get on every retreat, because it is a it, it is a, an important question, and it is a kind of question that is very natural to arise, because that seems to be the obvious thing, that if there is rebirth, then surely something must go across. yeah. And that which goes across, that clearly must be your essence. So the way to understand this is to understand that if you look at your life right here and now, yeah, in this very life, even now in this life, let alone when you die, you don't find an essence. Yeah, if you look at who you are now compared to what you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I don't know how old you are, but you know, whatever. Uh, maybe you're very young, so maybe last year. <laughs> if, you, if you look at yourself uh, like that, you will see that there is a degree of continuity there. You are not an entirely different person, but also there is no essential thing that actually passes through all of this. You are changing. There is change and there is some kind of continuity going in on there. 
So if you look at yourself very carefully, especially this happens through insight practice, you will in fact see that even in this very life, there is nothing that is always there, moving on from moment to moment. Everything is always continuously changing. And one way of thinking of this is like the simile of a river. If you have a river, then if you look at the water molecules in the river, if you look at one point in the river, there's not one moment, from the one moment to the next one, there's not a single water molecule that is likely to be left over from the previous one. It's an entirely different river from that point of view. Yeah, From the point of view of water molecules, it's an entirely different river at that particular point. But if you look at the over, if you stand back and you look at the overall shape of the river, the shape takes much longer to change. The shape of the river depends on the rainfall, depends on uh, all of these other things, yeah, and whether people build a dam or not, and uh, then the shape changes gradually and slowly. In the same way, uh, the shape of your personality can often be shaped be shaped slowly over long periods of time. Uh, but if you look at the, uh, the thing on the granul granular level, uh, then there is continuous change all the time. Uh, there's nothing really going on, moving on from one moment to the next one. Uh, yeah, if you see these things with insight. Uh, so that is the right way of understanding it. So even in this life, there is nothing there which is always there, much less when you go from one life to the next one. Uh, what is it that goes on from one life to the next one? Well, it is that same thing, that same stream of consciousness that you experience in this life. It is that same stream that carries on into the future life. It is a stream that doesn't have any essence to it. It's a granular stream where the molecules, if you like, or whatever it is, are changing all the time. But nevertheless, it is a stream with a certain coherence to it and that coherence is brought about by your habits by your karma and all of these other factors but it's not an essential thing yeah that is a nice way of thinking about it and this is one of the most profound teachings of buddhism and that is why it is so hard to understand and this is what dependent origination shows you. Dependent origination shows you precisely how it is possible to have rebirth without an essential self, without an essence carrying on from one life to the next one. Yeah, it is just a causal process. It is craving that kind of projects you again into the future. You're kind of moving on into the future through the power of craving. Craving is always about the future and it has the ability to keep you going. And uh, then uh, when you die, it carries on like this. Uh, but there's no essence there. There's nothing actually really carrying on. Uh. So that is that. Um, and uh, good. So keep on enjoying yourself. Uh, have a nice night. Have a good rest. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again tomorrow morning here. Yeah. Sambudo Bhagava Buddhang Bhagavantang Abhivademi Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami 
Sepate Pano Bhagavato Savakasango Sangang Namami